0: Turn your Bibles, please, to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, as you'll recall, we're continuing. Two weeks ago we did Revelation 4, we went back to Daniel 7 to better our context for this. And now chapter 5 continues where chapter 4 left off. Revelation 5, 1, this is the Word of God. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on the back, Sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaim with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing. His Lord had been slain with seven horns, with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne And they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard around the throne and living creatures and the elders, uh, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, And all that's in them saying, to him who sits on the throne to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down in worship. Join me. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning, grateful that you've given to us your word. Father, it's true and it's certain. So, Father, take that word this morning and shape the way we, uh, the way we think. Father, the convictions we hold. Father, the way we live, the way we view you. We ask and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It is stunning, really. Uh, the Apostle John's allowed to see into the very throne room of heaven itself, with God seated on the throne. And John doesn't, we saw two weeks ago, simply have the words to describe it, so he settles for talk of of light and jewels and thunder and lightning. And he sees these strange living creatures and he hears their chant, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And then he sees the elders bow in worship. Yet John is, is weeping in frustration and in disappointment. We're going to find out why. But there's a second way to approach this passage. Here at CMPC where we are committed to the Great Commission, to the global proclamation of the gospel. As John Piper and uh, this text will show us, missions, though, is not the ultimate uh, goal of the church. And worship is. As Piper said, worship, missions exist because worship does not. Worship is ultimate, missions not, because God is ultimate, not us. And When this age is over and the redeemed fall on their face before the throne of God, missions will be no more, but worship will go on forever. Now, this doesn't lessen our view of missions. It simply puts missions into its proper place And it directs the church to see the promise of worship now, as well as in eternity. But as Phil Newton suggests, it's no stretch to connect anemic church life today uh, in the West to a neglect of awe-filled, God-saturated worship. So the result is an obvious need for reformation and renewal, for revival. In order to worship God and and face a world where hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth. Goodwill to men. So with John weeping and a church that needs God saturated worship, we move to Revelation five. So let's let's go to the text. And we go, go back, we start with that throne that's, that we see in verse one. Now we want to keep in mind that everything that happens in these chapters in Revelation happens around the throne of God uh, and the one seated there. And we watched in awe in chapter 4 where God's holiness was so evident. His role as creator was emphasized and worship was prominent. The awesomeness of that scene overwhelmed us. We saw last week that it's obvious that those hideous beasts that come out of the chaos in Daniel 7 do not cause any panic in heaven. So the result for us should be a a sense of security in a very turmoil-filled world. Despite what we see, everything is going to be all right. Everything. So we are right to be filled with with a sense this morning of great hope. And that hope comes as we zero in on this book. uh, Some translations have or scroll as the ASV has. So pick it up in verse 1. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within, and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who's worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. So John notices that the one who seated on the throne, the Almighty, is, is holding the scroll in his hand. Um, and we've seen this before in the Word of God. In Ezekiel 2, verse 9 and 10, uh, that comes to us as, as Ezekiel's called to ministry, he is given a scroll that Ezekiel's called to take, and it's, he's called to preach it. And it's written on the back and on both sides. And we know that they were words of, of lamentation, they were words of judgment. And this is a scroll written on both sides. And it's bound and it's sealed with, with seven seals. Now, we don't, we don't know the exact contents at this point. But given the Old Testament precedent, it appears the scroll contains what John is supposed to preach, what he's supposed to tell us. Because not only Ezekiel 2, but Daniel 12 and Isaiah 29 also have similar scrolls. And they, they, they point to God's judgment of sin and his redemption of his people that John so much wants. He wants the world released from bondage to sin and destruction and the redeemed people of God set free and secured. So John perceives then, incorrectly, that the scroll has to do with the future, with what's about to happen. He believes the scroll makes known the fulfillment of the promises of God. Promises like the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Uh, The future of both the judgment of sin and of redemption uh, are about to begin. And that's when this mighty angel speaks and thunders a question. Who's worthy to open it? It's got to be opened if what's about to happen is going to take place. And so this booming voice of the angel carries into every corner of the universe. Who's able to open it? Who has the character? Who has the power? Who has the right? So they begin a search of the whole universe. And no one's found. None of the elders around the throne. Not those creatures. Not the angels. Not the patriarchs. Not the apostles. Not David or Moses or Abraham or Peter or Paul. None of them. But what about Augustine or Luther or surely John Calvin, right? John Knox? No, none of them. Not worthy. Not able to to open, read it, and do what it says. This creates what some have called a cosmic dilemma. If no one can open it, the scroll remains closed. And the future will not come. And so with John, we find ourselves in great tension. The scroll's importance cannot be overestimated. It's held in the hand of God himself, yet it seems that its secrets are locked away forever. And that's why John begins to weep. It's strong, it's unrestrained weeping. It's the same word used to describe Jesus weeping over the city of Jerusalem. It's the word that describes Peter's weeping after he denies Christ. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. So John weeps for a world he fears is forever captured by sin. And we join him in that weeping when we look around our world today. Even as we rejoice in a rare victory for life. We see utter rebellion against our Creator God. Absolute Psalm 2 defiance and Genesis 1 denial. The world today even objects to the notion that we're created male and female. That's really silly, by the way. The world rejects God's kingship. It rejects His Word telling them what to do. The world rejects the notion of sin... And so they reject the notion of needing a Savior. And quite frankly, John's weeping, and perhaps our weeping means, means we think that the sovereignty of God's in jeopardy. But then John's attention is drawn to a lamb. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. with simply saying, Stop crying. Behold the line of the tribe of Judah. Now who's that? Well, this points us back to Genesis 14, 49, rather, verse 9, where Jacob's fourth son Judah is described as a, uh, as a lion's cub. And this lion of Judah is one descended from that lion's cub. And he's on the scene. He's there to take the scroll and open it. This is the fulfillment of the promise there in Genesis 49 that a descendant of Judah would indeed receive the nations as his inheritance, the obedience of the peoples. And throughout the Old Testament, the lion is a symbol of, uh, that communicates power and fierceness. And so he's very much suited to open this scroll. The Elder also tells us he's from the root of David, the great king, the, the sweet psalmist of Israel, the shepherd of Israel. The shepherd of his people. Not a perfect king. He sinned greatly. But a forgiven king. A king who was promised by God that one from his throne family would sit on the throne forever as king. So now that root, that stump of Jesse's, we read in Isaiah 11, he's there. And now to be the one who's opened the scroll, of course, he must have conquered. And he says he has conquered. The Lion of Judah, the Root of David, the Messiah has conquered, can open the the scroll. All I have to do is is reach out and take the scroll from the hand of him who sits on the throne and open it. And so John turns to see this lion. And stunningly, what does he see? It's not a lion, but it's, it's a lamb standing among the elders. John expects a lion. But when he turns, he sees a lamb. And in the vision, the lion is turned into, transformed into a lamb. But there's something unusual about this lamb. John notices. Something about it communicates to, to John that, that's been killed. It's a slain lamb. And all sorts of biblical pictures start coming to our mind. John said, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We think of the Passover lamb. And yet this lamb is still alive. We're told in this text is this standing, slain lamb. And we typically think of little lambs as, as somewhat timid. He walks up to the throne that's surrounded by lightning and thunder and rainbows and a crystal sea of glass. Enchanting creatures and 24 elders. And he boldly just walks up to the throne and he takes the scroll from the right hand of the one who can only be described by, by color. He takes the scroll. John MacArthur points out that when we know what's coming in Revelation, looks like this is going to be a mismatch. We've got dragons on the way. We've got, got beast, locusts. We've got these frogs and more and more and more. And so a lamb... Really? Let's let's bring back the lion. But here's the great mystery. The lion is the lamb who's already defeated his opponents at the cross. This lamb has all the power and all the knowledge. Why do we say that? The seven horns, seven, the number of perfection, demonstrate the fullness of divine power. The omnipotence of Christ as he opens the book opens the scroll and executes the divine decrees uh, in the universe. The seven eyes point to Christ knowing everything, his omniscience, his perfect wisdom regarding every detail necessary for his people to be brought from the trials of life into the glories of eternity. And he expands the metaphor some, the eyes also point to the Holy Spirit, full of divine power and wisdom who has been sent out Uh, into all the earth so that wherever God's people are found whatever situation we face no matter how difficult the trial there's the certainty that the Holy Spirit has been sent from heaven itself from the throne to, to mediate power the power, the strength and the wisdom of Jesus Christ to his people this lion is the lamb that suffered and conquered. And he possesses all power and wisdom. And he comes and he takes the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Here's what's telling us. John's telling us that everything's under control. Do not panic. Do not despair. Do not give up. Do not fear. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will faithfully carry out all of God's plans. He will safeguard His people. And He'll deal with all of our enemies. And so now the final act of history is about to begin. The redemption Jesus purchased for His people at the cross is about to be completely applied them, and the paradise that was the Garden of Eden is about to be restored. The Lamb will take what is rightfully His in accordance with Psalm 2. And as soon as the Lamb takes uh, the scroll from the, hand, from the hand of the one seated on the throne, you'll notice everything changes. Everything on this scene. The Lamb takes the scroll and the, and the four living creatures and the 24 elders fall down before the Lamb. And friends, that's significant. They see the Lamb and they see Jesus And they see him as an equal to the one who's seated on the throne, to the Almighty. And they fall down and worship the Lamb. They offer the same worship to the Lamb that they offer to Almighty God, to the one seated on the throne. So it's interesting, they have these harps and they have bowls of of incense. Now we're told the bowls of incense, what they are, they're the prayers of the saints. In other words, our prayers, the prayers of God's people. Uh, help bring about what's taking place. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray. Our prayers become part of the worship of heaven itself. The part of bringing about what will happen when the seals are broken, the content of the scroll is made known. So what about the harps? People look at them two different ways. One is simply to suggest that there are instruments for worship. Uh, Kistemacher suggests that uh, taking these harps with the prayers of the saints, mingle with them, uh, helps us uh, share with the elders um, the communion of the saints in heaven on earth, that we're we're worshiping with them. It brings us together. Bruce Metzger writes, This communion of saints is not just the fellowship we enjoy in Apostles' Creed with other people during a service of worship, but includes also the idea that John expresses here. The unity of the church militant on earth with that of the church triumphant in heaven. In other words, when we join in worship here each and every Sunday morning, we are likewise involved in the worship that's taking place in the throne room of heaven itself. We're already there, as it were, but not yet there. Now, some also identify the harp as with the prophets who would, in the Old Testament, sometimes play play the harp when they prophesied, which you would have seen from 2 Kings 3 tonight, but you won't see it because we're going to have a guest speaker. All right? Uh, But the idea is there's the fulfillment of the promises of God, the prophecies of God that the Word of God points to, combined with the prayers of God's people. Now, if we wonder why this Lamb is so worthy to open these scrolls, when no other creature in the universe is worthy. All we need to do is listen to the songs that start in verse 9. And we find a stunning revelation of the Lamb's worthiness. We find a description of how indeed He conquers. Verse 9, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation." And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. The Lamb, Jesus is worthy because he did what no other Davidic king could do. He lived a perfect life, obedient to God, so that he could give his life as a ransom for us, to ransom us from our sin, to redeem us from our sin to rescue people from every nation and people group on the face of the earth. That's why the elders and the creatures start singing. This is truly the moment of great rejoicing. Now, previous with the Passover lamb, God had redeemed the people of Israel to be a kingdom of priests to serve Him. But now the lamb's been slain. And it's not just Israel. But it's people from every people group on the face of the earth. We all become part of his kingdom. We become his priest. And then John looks again. And around the throne you have the the creatures and the elders and the angels. And friends, the point is they're uncountable. A myriad is 10,000. And check your math. 10,000 times 10,000 is 100 million. Trust me, all right? One hundred million. One hundred million angels. That's a lot. And they burst into song. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory, and blessing. Friends, here is the foundation for global missions. Christ died to save people from every people group on the face of the earth. Jesus has secured for them eternity through his redemptive death. And friends, that leads to worship. It motivates missions. And so we engage in worship and these seven words in verse 12 help describe what Leon Morris calls the fullness and the perfection belonging to the Lamb. He points out that though Jesus came as a helpless baby, all power in heaven and on earth belongs to Him. That though he became poor for our sakes, the wealth of the Godhead belongs to Him. That though He was considered by Uh, his some of his peers to be uh, unlearned that in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that though he was subjected to the weakness of humanity he'll return in the glory of his might and though he's been dishonored and reviled by men God has honored him with a name above every name that though he's been treated as a criminal and crucified God has crowned him with glory And though he's been cursed by people everywhere, he will forever be a blessing to all creation. Friends, true worship engages our minds and hearts. We can never worship God apart from the truth. And Jesus will not be worshipped without the truth that affects our hearts. Worship is about stretching our minds to consider and contemplate the glories of God And then for that to impact our emotions to worship. And notice something here, every creature singing. All of us must sing. Singing is never optional for the Christian. Never. It's mandatory. And it's a new song here like no one's ever sung before because we have a new song to sing as the Lamb takes his rightful position at the throne of God. The Lamb who has rescued us and made us to be his people. And I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and into the sea, and all that's in them, saying, to him who sits on the throne to the Lamb, be blessing, and honor, and glory, and might, forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Friends, the day is coming when the beast will be destroyed. The day is coming when the rock that knocks down earthly kingdoms will grow and fill the whole earth. The day is coming when the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. And so the glory of God, the glory of the Lamb is the main point. Already heavens rejoice in the Lamb's triumph. Not yet do we fully experience entering into that worship. But here we watch in awe this scene from the throne room of God as they worship God and the Lamb. And indeed, when we worship here, we join with them. So what about us? Our hearts and minds should be overwhelmed at what we see in chapter 5. Our worship of God, our exaltation of God and of the Lamb is what gives us strength for today. It's what gives us hope for tomorrow. As Dennis Johnson and others remind us, we've had the death of awe in our world, the the death of worship and wonder. And it's left our world cynical, suspicious, frustrated, angry, hateful. I could go on. Like those who turn to the government of Rome and its emperors for hope. We have people all around us who put their hope in government or they've put their hope in technology. They've put their hope in capitalism. Or they've put their hope in communism. Indeed, they've engaged in, in worshiping such things. But they're sorely disappointed and angry. Even as Dorothy and her friends were at the Wizard. None of the world's institutions, as necessary as they are for the function of our world, are worthy of worship. None are worthy of glory. And so we look to a most unlikely source for awe and for true worship. Friends, we look to a lamb. We look to a lamb that's been slain. And when we do, we're filled with awe because that's the lamb that's triumphed. So when we weep in this troubled world, and we often do, We don't weep without hope, hope for tomorrow, nor do we weep without strength for today. Rather, our Christocentric worship today reminds us that God's on the throne, that Christ has triumphed, He's conquered and He will conquer. And so we are filled with strength for the day and hope for tomorrow. And I would just tell you, if you've not yet placed your trust in Jesus, trust in this Lamb of God please, we'd love to talk today and share with you how you can know for certain. Because you see, we also weep because of those who have not heard. Whether it's those in our community or around the world. But as we weep, we have the reality that Christ has people from every tribe and nation. And that fills our heart with hope to get out the message so they hear the gospel. It gives strength to those involved in taking the gospel so that people hear and believe. Friends, because only Jesus, only Jesus, can bring an end to the night of weeping and bring the new morning song. Let's pray. Father, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. We thank you for his death for us. We thank you that he gave his life, he shed his blood to ransom us. And Father, our our prayer is that each person here knows the joy of knowing Jesus. And if not, today would be the day you draw them to your Son. So, Father, cause us to want to worship Christ, the risen Lamb. Father, we're not just going through the motions here. Father, we're worshiping Christ. Fill us, Father, with all, we would pray. Fill us with reverence. Fill us with a sense of the glory and the majesty of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, fill us with the desire to make that good news known to the world around us. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.